0: You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. All right, so John 20, verses 19 through 23. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Acts 2. 38. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles.
1: All right, um, <clears throat> I'm getting over something, so if I break out into a cough attack and cough up a lung, that's what's going on. And I don't always sound this sultry, so <laughs> come back next week, you'll know, hear Pip's sweet voice. Uh, okay, we're concluding our series, Belong, sadly, uh, after this is gonna be our eighth week in this series. And what we've been doing week after week is discussing what it truly means to belong in a... Deeply divided and at times lonely generation. And we have continually, week after week, uh, retold the compelling vision of the ancient scriptures and how the Bible describes belonging, particularly belonging to the local church. And uh, today, what we're going to do is we're going to conclude with the topic of reaching together. Reaching together is the title of this morning's message. As you noted, we're looking at two different passages. But what, what we see in the concluding scene in Acts 2 is that as this church was faithful to God and faithful to one another, loving God, loving one another, what there was was this natural movement outward. So they're looking up, they're looking within to the needs of the community, and now we see this movement outward. Look at me in verse, the end of verse 46 and into 47. Praising God, having favor with all people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Okay, so here it is. This is our hope and prayer as a community. We would be a church that is marked by praising God, having favor with our community, and God adding to our number. Amen? That God would use this community of believers to gain that favor with the community in a way that would lead to men and women throughout our city and in our families and in our workplaces coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and belonging. If you remember from the very beginning of our year, we laid out some areas of transformation that we were going to be uh, uh, praying toward and actively pursuing. And one of those shifts that probably hasn't gotten enough airtime this year was the shift from being an inward-focused church to an outward-focused church, from being predominantly uh, uh, preoccupied with the needs of the community within and being a, com- uh, being a community that also looks out to the needs of, of the community, and the question is why. As William Tyndale wrote, the church is the one institution that exists for those outside of it. Most memberships, institutions, associations exist for its members. We do not exist primarily for our members, we exist for the glory of God and the good of all mankind. That means that that changes our position within the church. If you're a member within the church, you are no longer a guest in our house. Wait for it. You're a host. If you're a child of God, if you're a Christian, this is your church. You don't approach gathering as a guest. Serve me. What am am I going to get out of this? You predominantly approach this gathering in this church as a host, as one who has been commissioned who has received grace through God and now commissioned to welcome others to belong God's vision for his covenant community is to be a people that bring those who are outside of relationship with God and his church into reconciliation and life in Jesus Christ and the movement that we see throughout the new testament is 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 twofold God graciously brings us into the community to belong what a gift of grace that God has made us a part of his family And then he graciously commissions us to be those who go out and invite others to come in as well. To be those who reach out beyond the comforts and the confines of our own circles, beyond our own cliques, beyond our own little locked doors and fears and anxieties to call others to join as well. What we're doing this morning is we're reversing in the story. We're jumping back to the Gospel of John about 50 days prior to what we're reading here in Acts to get a little glimpse into the calling that is upon the church of Jesus Christ and to get this really beautiful picture of transformation that Jesus Christ brings about in them. If you're really noticing the movement of that passage in John, there's a, a dramatic shift that occurs, even within just a couple verses. And so we're going to note three things here in John if you're taking notes. The visitation, the commission, and lastly, the provision. Looking first at the visitation. Now, there was a video that surfaced, maybe you saw it uh, a couple weeks back. Um, It was a video from the early stages of the devastating campfire up north in Paradise. And it was a man driving, and his daughter was in the back seat, and the camera or the phone or whatever is filming this very dramatic scene as they're driving through the flames, narrowly escaping flames on both sides. The window is cracking, you see the embers, uh, coming onto the car. Uh, there's cars sort of um, caught in, in the road. There's honking. It's just, it's just a chaotic scene. And you hear his daughter in the back, very young girl, saying, we're going to get on fire. We're going to get on fire. What's going to happen when we get on fire? And then you hear the voice of the dad, and he says, we're not going to catch on fire. We're, we're going to be okay, okay? And she says, Okay. And if you saw this video, you remember, he begins to sing. Now, it's not particularly good singing, <laughs> but it's assuring singing. And he sings to his daughter, and, and in this scene, it's, it's pretty remarkable, where the flames are occurring, and there's honking, and there's chaos, and there is a serious threat of death. I mean, serious. His presence and his voice speaks peace into his daughter. In In a way that seems to change her reality for her seems to remarkably shift her prospect on life and her outlook on her future look at me in John 20 verse 19 through 20 on the evening of that day the first day of the week the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews let me pause real quick not just Jews in general but the leaders of the Jewish synagogue and Jewish community Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. On the evening of the resurrection, what John is noting here, the very day that Jesus Christ conquered death, sin, the grave, Satan, and all of it, A day that should be marked by joy. A day that should be marked by enthusiasm. A day that should be marked by, you got to hear this. This changes everything. But what do we see? We see the disciples gathered behind locked doors, afraid for their lives. That locked door is very important to know because it symbolizes a couple things for us. Symbolizes not just the threat that's being kept out at this moment. They've locked the door because they're worried about who's going to come in. But also symbolizes the message of hope that is now being kept in not just what's being kept out but that message of hope that's being kept in what we read of here is not just the threat that the church was facing at this moment but the threat that the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ was facing in this moment this these were the apostles these were the witnesses. These were those who were commissioned to go and spread this gospel, spread this message into the world. And there it is, locked up in the safety of their gathering. There it is, protected. And yet in this beautiful scene, Jesus steps into their fearful little huddle, and he says with repetitive power, he says it twice if he noted, peace to you. Peace be with you. One of the richest words that we have in Christianity is peace. Peace peace we see its profound meaning in the old testament god's vision for human flourishing shalom god's desire for humanity god's desire behind all of recreation that we would experience shalom that we would experience peace christ says peace to you the scarred hands and feet of jesus christ speak of the peace that he brings between god and sinners those scars speak of of the fact that he's eliminated the enmity that exists between us and God because of our sin. The enmity that he has torn down through his atoning sacrifice on the cross, peace to you. The gift of the Holy Spirit speaks of the peace that he's bringing into the world through us, his peacemakers, his ministers of reconciliation into a deeply divided world. What we see here is that Christ steps through the locked doors of our fears where we are hiding and he speaks peace into our souls peace with god peace with others and peace within peace to you jesus says what does this mean what does this change when jesus says peace to you to these disciples what we see in just a matter of two verses are a group of disciples that are absolutely overcome by fear and terror of being found out as followers of Jesus Christ. And now they are overcome with joy. In an instant, they are now overcome by joy because of this peace spoken into their lives. And this peace that Jesus, his presence and his voice brings into our lives as well, eliminates barriers. Jesus' peace Eliminates barriers, the ones that simply exist, and the ones that we have created ourselves. Those barriers that hold us down, the ones that hold us back, the ones that hold us down with guilt and cripple us with fear and anxieties, those cannots, will nevers, I'm only going to be this, and I will never be this, and this is all I'll ever be, and who am I, to all of those barriers, and all of those fears, and all of those obstacles, Jesus steps through and he speaks peace. He says, peace. Those barriers are there, and they may seem as real as ever. And yet, I love this picture. The resurrected Jesus Christ clearly is not restricted by them. Jesus, Jesus disregards your barriers. He simply steps through. For those who belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus approaches those barriers that exist between us and stepping out as his faithful representatives in the world to those faulty walls with locked door, he simply steps through, and through the gospel, he says to us as well, peace be with you. And that same world-changing word that if you remember earlier in Mark, stopped the storm in its tracks and gave the early disciples boldness, now confronts our fears. That same, that same peace of Jesus Christ sets us free and now sends us out. Which leads us to our second point, the commission. Look at me in, in verse 21. Jesus said to them again a second time, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Now let the gravity of that come to bear on our hearts for just a second. As the Father has sent me, so am I sending you. The very Son of God's mission into the world, like the greatest rescue mission that the world has ever known, has been entrusted to a motley crew like you and I. Has been entrusted to His church. Not agencies, not municipalities, not nonprofits. These may be agents of good and God's goodness in this world, but there is and always will be the church at the center of God's rescue plan. He's not going to give up on this thing. There's no plan B. He's no, like, you know, I, I got a new plan here. <laughs> it's always going to be the church by God's grace and grace alone. Now, this doesn't mean that we take over for Jesus. I got it from here now, Jesus. We got it. But it means that Jesus Christ from the right hand of the Father is now continuing his mission in the world powerfully through his people the church is God's mission to the world. Reality, we are a part of God's mission to this world. But here's what's happened. Tragically, for most of us in the West, we've lost sight of this. It goes something like this. Church is what we do here in, here in our time, and missions is what a few brave people do overseas. This is church, and that is mission. Mission. And what we've done is we've created these faulty, unbiblical tiers. The real Christians and us ordinary Christians. The real followers and us. And what the rest of us do, while they are out there doing the mission, while they are fulfilling the Great Commission, we do our part by coming to church on Sunday. And as a result, many of us have lost our sense of sentness. Many of you, maybe, have lost your sense of sentness. We've allowed Jesus' commissioning voice grow deaf, grow faint. Listen to how Leslie uh, Leslie Nestle, Nestle. on the mind. Listen to how Leslie Newbegin put it. We've corrupted the word church by constantly using it in a non-missionary sense. Pause. Can you take that down real quick? There we go. Okay, we'll come back to that. We have corrupted the word church by disconnecting it from its missionary sense. What taints the reputation of Jesus' church? See, we could come up with a long laundry list of things that would taint the reputation of the church. And he says the number one way that we do it is when we disconnect it from the mission of Jesus Christ. All right, let's bring it back up. Thank you. If it was always clear both in our speech and in our ecclesiastical life, that the church is the mission, that it is essentially something dynamic and not static, that the church exists by mission as fire exists by burning, then inner church aid would always be aid for mission and nothing else. It would always be about aiding the mission. Perhaps real clarity will only come when there has been a sufficiently deep process of self-examination in the life of the ordinary congregation so that the ordinary churchman understands that to be a member of the church, listen, means to be a part of the mission to the world. To be a member means to be a part of the mission, God's mission to this world. God's people are a sent people, and listen, without exception. I know, I, I know. We see ourselves as the exception. Maybe we don't think we're gifted enough. Maybe we think our our past is too tainted. Maybe we don't know enough. A couple more years of study, a couple more years of discipleship, then I'll be ready. God's people are sent people without exception. If you belong to him, you belong simultaneously to his mission, to take the transforming message of Jesus to those who are near and to those who are far to those who are across the globe, and listen, to those who are across the street with just as much power, with just as much necessity, with just as much dignity. Hear these words of Jesus coming directly to you. We read God's word and we think it was for some other people back then. Listen to Jesus' words to you. I could say this with confidence. This is Jesus' vision for your life. As the Father sent me Even so, I'm sending you, 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 I'm sending you. But we may be asking how, how? Because we're small and the world is big. We like these early disciples, this first group huddled here is very small compared to the need of the world. The needs around us are so great And at times we feel so inadequate. How on earth is Jesus going to fulfill such a huge, important mission through little us? Which leads to our third and final point, the provision. Verses 22 through 23. And when he said this, when he commissioned them, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any... They are forgiven them. If we withhold the forgiveness of forgiveness from any, it is withheld. How? He sends us in the power of His Holy Spirit with a message that extends full and complete forgiveness to any and every that would believe. A message that saves. God's power unto salvation. Romans one would tell us. Now, many people argue about this passage and. Um, I don't really get caught up too much in that. Part of the argument is whether or not this is occurring before or after Pentecost. Where John is on the timetable here. Maybe the apostles received the Holy Spirit before everyone else did at Pentecost. Or maybe they received just like a little taste, just a little nibble uh, before Pentecost comes about. I don't know. But for us, what matters most is that we know that the Spirit has been given. For those of us who live this side of Pentecost, the Bible tells us that for those who are united in Christ through faith, we receive the Spirit in full measure. Not a nibble, not a little taste, not a little here, here's some now and a little bit later, in full measure, the Spirit of God in every believer, with every believer, empowering every single believer. What seems to be happening here is Jesus is giving a visual demonstration of what would come in just a matter of weeks on Pentecost. But the demonstration is sort of, sort of strange. What's the demonstration? He breathes on them. He breathes on them. That's weird. That's weird. Could you imagine if a coach brings his team into the locker room? It's, it's halftime, and the final half determines the championship. He's getting them psyched up. He's getting them pumped up. He says, all right, get out there and win. Now, come here. Let me breathe on you. <laughs> I'm just gonna I'm just gonna stand at the door and just kind of blow on you as you pass through. That'd be weird, super weird. This doesn't seem like a like a go-get 'em kind of thing to do. So the question is why? What, what's the point of breathing on them? What, what's what's John communicating here? What's Jesus communicating here? What we see throughout the Gospel of John is there's a particular emphasis on the reader making connections between this Jesus who came and lived and performed miracles and said amazing things, and died and rose on the third day. That the reader would make connections between this Jesus and the creation of the world. In fact, we have this example, John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. That's Genesis language there. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John's making some connections, and what he's doing here, again, is he's making another connection. This picture of Jesus breathing on them points us all the way back to Genesis 2. This is what we read. This is what Jesus is connecting for us. Genesis 2, 7 through 8. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man who he had formed. So here's the connection. Just as God breathed his spirit, breathed his breath into Adam at creation and therefore made him a living being, a living man, a living creature and then placed him in the garden as, as his representative. We're seeing this again here in Jesus. What we see demonstrated in John is that Jesus breathes his spirit, he breathes his breath, he breathes his new life into us, bringing about new life into our lives, places us into the world as his representatives. What Adam failed to do, Christ fulfills, and then Jesus gives humanity another chance, but now with the power of the Holy Spirit. To be God's faithful ambassadors, not just now in the garden, but in this garden world. For the believer, God has breathed his life into you. Think about this. That same breath that formed and spoke the entire universe into being is now breathed into our lives. And now has provided his very power for you so that you and I, his children, can be his faithful servants sent into the world with the message of grace, with the message of mercy, with the message of eternity and forgiveness and, and transformation. So those of us who belong can with confidence go invite others to belong as well. There's a scene in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Yeah, okay. Um, and it's the scene toward the end where, where Indy is close to the Holy Grail, but there's this large chasm between him and what he set out to accomplish. And he's standing up against the cliff, he sees this chasm, you know, he's there, his shirt's unbuttoned, and it's like sweating. Like tons of women from the 80s are like swooning, you know. <clears throat> And you know his, his dad's somewhere else, like reminding him of the myth. Like it, it, you, you got to take a leap of faith, and he's remembering. You got to take a leap of faith. You got to take, take a leap of faith, stepping out into what seems like peril. And many of us are at that place, peering into the distance. We we can see across the chasm over there. We see that life of boldness for Jesus' sake. We see that life that God has called us to. We see that that call to to go make disciples. We see that call to go be bold for Jesus Christ and to share our faith and to spread that message of forgiveness through Christ and to, and to see people's lives change. We're, we're, we're peering across the chasm, but then we, we feel like we can't reach it. We look down at the jagged rocks below and we think, gosh, what if I fail? What if I fall? What are they going to say? What if they laugh? What if things get awkward? What when, when am I going to lose? What ends up happening is we get consumed by the dangers. That fear that gripped the disciples grips us as well. And in these moments, what we need to remember is this, is this scene in John. We need to remember this scene. We need to step out into the unknown and trust Jesus' gift to us, the provision of the Holy Spirit. And this is what it means. The gift of the Holy Spirit means that God's very grip is upon us. God's very grip is upon us that Christ's ministering presence is with us. And now all of heaven's power and all of heaven's might is at work within us to accomplish what God has called us to so that we can step out, so that you can step out. Amen? Here's what I want to conclude with. uh, There's a passage that's been bugging me in Acts 2. And uh, it's a a particular line here. It's found in verse 43. I'll read the part coming... Uh, before it, just for context, and they. De- this is our last chance not Acts two for a while, so I got to get it out now. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul. That line right there has haunted me since we began this study because I'm not really even sure what that means. Awe came upon every soul. What are they seeing? What are they experiencing? Here's what awe assumes. Awe assumes that one or multiple senses are being activated. We see something that's awe-inspiring. We taste something that's like, whoa. We we, we hear something that moves us. Awe generally activates our, our senses. So the question is, what did they see? What are they feeling? What are they hearing? What are they looking at? What are they experiencing? The apostles saw, and they actually got to touch Jesus. They got got, got to stick their hands in the scars and the wounds of Jesus Christ and see with their own eyes. Jesus is raised. But here's the thing about the church in Acts. Like many of us today, the majority of them didn't. And none of us do today. We don't have that gift and that privilege to be able to stick our hands in this side of, of Jesus Christ and to feel his wounds and to see him raised. And yet we see this very remarkable thing that church still experiences awe. That same joy that filled the disciples as they saw and touched and experienced. Jesus fills the church in Acts. And so, wow. What happened? What did they experience? And I think it has to do with the table. I think it has to do with the table. Um, if you've ever been to my house, you know that our, our dining table is extremely small. In fact, most people that come over look at our dining table and say, you sit seven people around that? We've got five kids. And... Uh, so we, we purposely designed this table to be small. It's like two feet across. And you could pass something pretty much anywhere on that table. But we're in each other's faces. I mean, it, it's an up-close and personal experience every, every time. And there are times where I'm sitting back, and, you know, just the chaos that is Simon's dinner. And I'm thinking, like, what did I get myself into? There are times, like, whoa, this is a little bit much. But then there are times when I just step back, I sit back, rather, and I, I experience honest-to-goodness awe. I look across the table, I see my wife, I, I look on both sides, I see my children in all of their chaos, and I thinking to myself, I still feel like that 16-year-old kid that couldn't even be entrusted with cleaning his room. And, and like here I am in these people's lives, like honest awe. As they broke bread, partaking of the Lord's Supper, looking around this table at who God had brought together, who God had called to belong and how he was transforming lives. Luke tells us, awe continued to fill every soul. Reverend Greg Boyle shares the story of a a young man that came through their gang rehabilitation program in Los Angeles, who turned his life around, got saved and now is ministering to others. And he shares of how this young man was beat bloody every single day of his childhood. He'd go to school with three shirts on to cover the blood. And so he, he went into his adult years ashamed of those scars. He wouldn't let anyone see them. He wouldn't let anyone know about them because he was ashamed. And uh, Reverend Boyle shares that there was this moment where he, he, he learned to accept and welcome his wounds. And this young man shared this. He said, how can I help heal the wounded if I can't welcome my own? How can I be a part of healing others if I can't welcome my own wounds? In other words, how can I be used by God in the lives of broken people if I am unwilling to acknowledge my own brokenness, the brokenness of my life, the brokenness of my story, the brokenness of my upbringing? Peter Schizero writes this, we all come into the family of Jesus with broken bones, wounds, and legs shot up in the war of life. God's intention is to heal our brokenness, and to patch up our wounds. But he allows the scars and weakness to remain. Jesus allows the scars to remain. Why? Why? Because as we see in John, scars are compelling. Scars compel. In the kingdom of God, our scars serve as testimonies. How? Because they tell the world around us the story of Jesus' resurrection power and his ability to transform lives. You, my friend, are a living, breathing, walking testimony of God's grace, scars and all, wounds and all, broken history and all, broken present and all. Today, we don't have the ability to touch the hands and the side of Jesus, like I mentioned, like the first disciples did. But that doesn't mean that the church is left without a witness. That does not mean the church is left without awe. Because I look into this room, and I see all around testimonies of God's work in the world. I look around this room, and I stick my hands into the scars, the proof of God's resurrection power at work in our midst. Perhaps awe came upon every soul. As the community began to witness just who was being welcomed to belong, the scarred, the broken, marginalized, those who have been told you don't belong here, those who have been held out, they looked around the table. They saw all the divisions and the barriers being leveled in the name of Jesus Christ. And it was as if they were staring into the very glory of God in their mind. And awe came upon every soul. And that's our prayer. That's our prayer behind this series. This is our prayer for our mission as a church to make disciples. That as God adds to our number as well, that our community would look on and say, look who God has brought together. And awe would fill every heart. Amen? Amen. I'd like to call the worship team up at this point.